we roughly tripled that year. So like we yeah. went from zero to a million in 2014. And then from beginning of 2015 until the end, we went from one to three roughly at the time. Welcome back to the Founder-Led Marketing Show, where we talk about how to create awareness, build trust, generate demand, and drive efficient growth for your B2B software startup. In today's episode, we talk with Alex Jampolski, who is the co-founder and CEO of Security Scorecard. Security Scorecard is a B2B SaaS company that is doing over $100 million ARR. I think they're a 500, 600 people company. Pretty impressive journey. Um, but in this episode, we go back in time and we talk about his main lessons, takeaways, mistakes he made growing the company from 1 million to 10 million ARR. I hope you enjoy it. If you have any feedback or question, hit me up on LinkedIn. And without further ado, enjoy the episode. Well, Alex, thank, thank you for joining. Thank you for taking the time. Um, I know we have a lot of topics that we want to cover and you only have 30 minutes. So I'll do my best to navigate us through this conversation. Um, guys, if you're seeing this, whether it's on Zoom or also on LinkedIn, where we're streaming this and you have a question, feel free to just drop them in and I'll try to incorporate it into the into the conversation. Uh, main topic here, I want to focus on growing from 1 to 10 million ARR. I know that you guys are, you know, beyond the 100 million mark, which is insane. That's, uh, you know, very impressive. Uh, not a lot of companies do that, but you know, because a lot of companies don't do that, you know, there is uh, there is a lot of value, I feel like, in still the, the earlier days. Um, so we're going to go back a little bit in time. And I did some research. I listened to your most recent interview with Nathan Latka uh, from, from last year. So we'll dive into some of the specifics. Um, but let's get this started. All right, Alex, can you just like two sentences Give an intro about security scorecard. What problem you guys solve and for whom, just so people have a little bit of context if they don't know the company? Sure. Well, look, you can think about security scorecard as credit ratings. We uh, The big problem uh, that we're solving is that there was absolutely no KPIs that companies use to quantify and measure cyber risk. Uh, you invest millions of dollars into cybersecurity. And you have no idea if you became 1% safer, 2% safer, 10% safer. So we figured out a way of how to collect signals non-intrusively from outside and to reduce it to a score representing resilience of a company. So that's kind of our solution. And the problem is lack of visibility. When you have third-party partners you do business with, you want to figure out who you can trust, who you can't trust. And so companies used to use pen and paper questionnaires that would take a 20-page questionnaire and go send it to the third parties and ask them, can I trust you? Can you right. attach evidence? Um, was very manual, very ineffective until we came along and pioneered the concept of ratings. And, and the, the concept is actually called Security Scorecard, which is also the name yeah. of the company. So I like that. <laughs> That's simple. Um, cool. So if I did my research correctly, you founded the company in 2013. You spent most of 2014 building the product. And then in 2015, roundabout, you said that you guys hit the 1 million ARR mark. You guys announced your Series A in April 2015. So it was, I guess, roughly around that range or time, which also kind of makes sense from Series A raising standpoint. 
Is that correct, or did I get get? Yeah, so we were so we were incubating the company on weekends uh, from the middle of 2013. Then we raised the first seed institutional round at the end of 2014. And yep, some some of my business partner and I we were able to quit our jobs, and we started the company full time on January 1st, 2014. Wow! So we we had a seed round, and then we probably had a little bit under bucks in annual recurring revenue at the end of 2014. We spent <laughs> half the year building a product and the other half selling. selling. And, and then in series, and then uh, early 2015, we raised yep. a Series A from Sequoia Capital. Yep. That was like the, uh, the next round after the seed. That's a, that's a nice one to, to get on your cap table. Okay, so 2015, early 2015, you hit 1 million in ARR. Yeah, when, like at the beginning of 2015, we were at about a million. And I think I need to remember, but I think from 2015, like we roughly tripled that year. So like we yeah. went from zero to a million in 2014. And then from beginning of 2015 until the end, we went from one to three roughly at the time. And then I think you mentioned with in, in the Nathan Latka interview that around about 2017, so like two years after hitting 1 million, you guys hit 10 million? Something like that. I don't remember all the numbers at that point. But uh, yeah, look, I think we went from one to three, three to six, and then six to 12 or something like that. So yeah, it took us a couple of years to follow that trajectory. So you did I mean, the... The usual rule of thumb, at least triple, triple, double, double, triple, triple, double, double, double. Like that was a nice. usual thumb, and we kind of followed it for the most part. Love it. Um, cool. So 1 million 2015, 10 million in 2017. That's super fast. Can you, I know it's a long time ago, eight years. Can you take us back to 2015, around about that time when you raised that round from Sequoia? How many people were you guys? What was happening at the time? What was was the main focus just selling? Was the main focus product still taking user feedback and kind of improving the product? What was happening at 2015 around that 1 million mark? Yeah, so look, I think when we first raised the seed round in the beginning of 2014, we had a prototype, we had a hypothesis. So I think when you're going from zero to about a million, your goal as an entrepreneur, because any company exists to solve pain, right? Like people have a pain point and you come up with a solution that alleviates the pain and how much money they're willing to pay you is directly proportional to how good your solution is. So I think uh, from zero to one, you want to really get good at listening to your customers. We were probably about 20, 25 people in 2014 and uh, we had about 10 customers altogether. Mm-hmm. And so how do you get the first customers? Well, look, you just use your connections and relationships. And I think early right. customers are people who are going to take a chance on you. They know that your product is not that good. They know that you're still early on, but they're risk takers like visionaries. Right. Kind of, if you think about cross on the chasm. So you got to find those visionaries who are going to take a chance on you. And then you deeply listen to them and try to iterate on the product to make it better. Of course, your resources are limited. Usually you raise a couple of million dollars when you do a seed round, if you're venture funded and not bootstrapping. Yeah. So we really focused on building a product and 
listening deeply to those customers. Uh, and once you once you're able to convince 10 people that you don't really know that well to pay you money, uh, then you can go to institutional investors and say, hey, if you give me more money, then I can start build, building a go-to-market machine with sales and marketing. And right. so I think 2014 was the first half was spent on just building a product. I knew how to do it as an engineer. And then the second half was spent on something that to me at the time was not natural because I'm not a sales rep, like I'm an introvert. Did um, they all came, came out of your, your network? I think when I, if I understand it right. You, came out of, uh, it, it came out of people that I knew, but also yeah. you had to go hustle a lot and look for new introductions and new people. Uh, so it was just a numbers game at the end of the day. You have to get, and so for me, you had to get used to a lot of no's and then you had to, convince people why they need to take a chance on you and your product and how it's gonna you have to evangelize your idea and then when you raise a series a and i'm talking about like a 10 to 20 million dollar series a usually that's mm -hmm. when the attention should be shifting on to building a repeatable sales and marketing engine and really like really kind of expanding beyond that so i think for 2015 the next focus for us was okay i got 10 customers how do I now turn those 10 customers to 30 customers? Like what would it take? Right. And so that went to how do you build a machine to look for new leads? How do you build marketing collateral to explain what you do? How do you really kind of like start building the beginnings of that apparatus? All right. So we'll get to that. So for zero to one, you did sales yourself. You did, you did fund that sales basically. From zero to one, I mostly did sales myself. I actually think that uh, it's a mistake to hire sales reps too early. It's a big mistake that companies make because sales reps are expensive. They cost money. And then uh, they're never going to do as good a job as a founder to articulate the value prop. Like I think the first 500 right. people in enterprise product, you should not have any sales reps. It would just be a waste of money. Right. And I mean, you also had the superpower, as I understand it, that you were selling to CISOs and you were a CISO in your previous, you know, life before you before you started this company. Well, hundred percent, right? Because when you when you start a startup, you want either you or your co-founder, you want to have a deep knowledge of a space. Otherwise, you're just not going to be credible. Yeah, I mean, something had to give you like an idea that you're solving, and. Uh, you had to have an insight and have a audacity, the uh, the courage to go act on that insight and go start a company. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, you have to be credible, right? And so me knowing security, that definitely helped me because uh, I could tell people about what are the pain points that I had and yeah. what the creation of this company. Yeah. All right. So you hit a, a million in 2015. You sold yourself, got those first 10 customers. And then you said you, the, the next goal is kind of to build that repeatable sales and marketing engine. So talk to me about that. Like, what the, did that look like for you? Did that mean hiring a VP sales, VP marketing and letting them build it? Was that, you know, what what were your priorities kind of as you started thinking about building that repeatable sales and marketing engine? No, look, yes, I hired the first marketing leader and the first sales leader and uh, look you you need to start conveying your brand so uh, again there's no there's no magic to it i would say that i mean look i, I would say like sales and marketing are more of a repeatable playbook than uh, figuring out what the product market fit is i think figuring right. out the product market fit takes 
a lot of listening, experimentation, deeply understanding the pain point. But for sales and marketing, look, we put up a simple website. We started doing thought leadership, the blog posts, the white mm-hmm. papers, webinars um, about the problem. And then yep. look, at the end of the day, it's all about the numbers game. You want to get in front of, you have a hypothesis about who your ideal customer persona is. In other words, like what's the characteristic of a person yep. who need your product? What is her job? How many kids does she have? When does she get up in the morning? What are the companies that you go after? And I think a lot of time people don't really know what their ideal customer persona is. So they talk to too many people and many of these people just aren't even the right buyers for your product. And so we had to do a lot of tests, experimentation, talk to a lot of people and kind of see what resonated. Uh, And uh, at the end of the day, it's just a numbers game, right? You get business development rep, one or two of them, to cold call, cold email people, you do a webinar like this, you tell yep. people to register and then 10 people register because they might be interested in a topic. And then, yep. okay, out of 10, if you're lucky, maybe one buys and you just kind of leather rinse and repeat at an early stage. Right. And so- But, what- I, but I think this like stage, this crucial stage of like one to 3 million, which is hard. I think the number one mistake that I think most founders make is- they overestimate um, how valuable their product is and what the product mm-hmm. market is. Like right. somehow, somehow people lived before you came along. Like right, company they got function, the job done. They got the job done somehow before you. Yeah. So now you got a hypothesis of how you're going to help get the job to be done. Right, the job to be done. Yep. More efficiently. Like, are you really helping them enough? Like before Uber, you had taxis, but the pain that felt is you had to stand in the rain and there weren't any cars around. So when Uber came, it's much easier. You hit a button and a car shows up and your credit card is wired. You don't need to think about it. Yeah. But I think a lot of people overestimate how good their product is and they don't deeply listen enough to their customers and they don't make the product simple and beautiful. And so as a result, you, you start experiencing the struggle where... You talk to 10 people, 20 people, and people don't buy or they pay you very little. And then you're like, well, I just got to persevere. Perseverance is good. That's a very good quality for entrepreneurs. But I think you also have to very carefully listen to signals about what are people telling you when they don't buy? Like Because uh, the biggest competitor is not your competitor, but doing nothing. That's the biggest uh, competitor that's most deadly to most startups. So I want to, you mentioned a couple of things, right? So like that from one to 3 million companies and founders overestimate product market fit. You said kind of after the 1 million, it's about the numbers game, hiring, hiring two to two, one to two BDRs, cold calling, cold emailing, doing webinars, thought leadership. What was your focus as the CEO back then in 2015? Like, did you just focus on hiring these people, did you focus on, did you hire that sales leader and marketing leader and let them figure out the numbers game while you keep working on the product? You know, were you jumping around from thing to thing or what was your your main focus at that time? Were you still hopping on sales calls? Were you doing the webinars? You know, like what, what was your time spent on? Again, look, there's no one playbook which says yeah. here's what CEO of a company should do. Yeah. Everybody has their different approach and strengths. Right. You have to figure out what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, like where do you feel like you're going to contribute the most? For example, I would contribute absolutely zero 
in financial PL modeling, like zero. And I also don't enjoy doing it. Right. Right. That also is a blind spot because if you ignore it and you have a team that does it without you validating, that also creates a blind spot. No, look, I think I think at an early stage, and actually even at the later stage, you gotta focus on everything. And it changes. Like one week to another week, it changes. Uh, what you focus on as a leader and an entrepreneur. But look, I always have spent and continue to spend a lot, a lot of my time on hiring. I probably spent 50% of my time on hiring back then and even today. That's number one. Uh, number two, yeah, I would spend the other 50% of the time on product and the other 50%, yes, it adds up. <laughs> yes, it adds up to 150, not 100. So it's long hours. And the other 50% on customers. But like, you got to work backwards. I think the main advice that I would give, you got to work backwards. If you raise the seed round, mm-hmm. then what do investors expect? They expect you to get to a Series A stage. Mm-hmm. What's a Series A stage? B. So a Series A stage is you built a oh. product where 10 people bought it. You had about a million in revenue. And you got a story about how you're going to go from one to three. Mm-hmm. So if you're a seed stage, you work backwards, you say, how much money do I have? What's my revenue? If my revenue is zero, let's build a product. How long is it going to take me to get to a good stage? And then you kind of work backwards. Like, where do you need to be so you have at least six, seven months of cash on hand and you're ready to demonstrate to people one to three story? Mm-hmm. Now, if you raise a series A and we're talking about, you know, 10 to $20 million fundraise, then if people give you money, then okay, how? Uh, what's the valuation that you get? And you work backwards from the valuations in the market and you say, okay, like let's say I raised 10 million on a 25 million pre-money valuation, right? That's mm-hmm. 35 million post-money. Mm-hmm. So the multiples right now all compressed in the market. Mm-hmm. Hyper-growth company right now in a public market is trading at a 10X multiple. Mm-hmm. So look, I just got money at a 35 million valuation. My revenue is 1 million. 35 divided by 10 is three and a half. So mm-hmm. I got to figure out how I triple in, a, in one year. Right. If I want to live up to my valuation. If you don't, then it's painful. It's a problem. So then if you triple your run rate, then you're like, okay, you got to do the math. What's my average contract size? At this point, you should have an idea because you have 10 customers. Yep. So you look, okay, I got, let's say my average contract size is $100,000. So I got to generate 2 million extra from one to three. So right. 2 million divided by 100,000, that's 20 customers. 20 customers divided by four quarters, that's five new customers per quarter. Again, it could be not as symmetrical as that. Right. Now you got to say, okay, if I got to generate... 3 million in revenue at a four or five X multiple, that's a $12 million pipeline in marketing. Right. So you got to work backwards and say, okay, I'm still trying to figure stuff out. I got a pile of cash. How do I start testing what, what gets me the leads? Right. That pipeline. So reverse engineer, view raise a series A, they want to get you to series B. What evaluation do you need to get to? What run rate do you need to get to? What's your ACV? You divide that. You figure out how many customers you need to add within a year, and then you kind of can figure out the numbers game backwards. How many leads do you need to generate to have that amount of opportunities that then turn into that amount of paying customers? So 50% hiring, 50% product, 50% customers. Now, 
Is that the game from one to 10 million? Would you say there is a different priority from five to 10 million? You're now running the numbers game. You're talking to customers. You're improving the product. Is it just that? Keep repeating it? Or are there, you know, what other things are we kind of not talking about that that you need to be focused on during this phase from one to 10 million? Well, look, I mean, there's no, I mean, it's not like it's a simple playbook. (laughs) Repeatable every single time. At the end of the day, look, at the end of the day, I think there are four things that really influence how the companies grow and scale. So look, number one, and most important, it's the market. Mm -hmm. You could have a great team, great product, great amount of capital, but if you're in the wrong market, there's not much you can do about it. So the market dynamics really matter and make a big difference. For example, and you mean just macroeconomics, or you mean like you're in the wrong well, no, vertical? Also, also the also the market that you're in. Yeah. For example, uh, I used to be a chief security officer at Guild Group, which did flash sales. Mm-hmm. During the good times at flash sales, we went from 200 people to like 2,000 people in just a couple of years, uh, because uh, people got excited about this idea of buying designer clothes at discounts and it was amazing then the market started getting very saturated you started having a lot of competition the customers got disillusioned they no longer were buying this luxury clothes online and all of a sudden you're in a tough spot right Uh, so the same with clubhouse look clubhouse pioneered with and i was a cto of uh, block to credit an audio podcasting uh, company before i started this company, uh, so I'm very well well familiar with the space. Like we were visited by 30 million visitors every month, uh, including Oprah Winfrey, President Obama, and others. But similar space to Clubhouse went up like that. Then all of a sudden, you get in hyper competition from Facebook and Twitter and others, and LinkedIn, and LinkedIn, and consumer attention just changes. And all of a sudden, no matter how good you are, how good your team is, things move under your feet. So. Look, you can call market luck. It is luck, but mm-hmm. you got to time it properly. That's probably 90% of the game. 90%, maybe even 95%. The 5% matters that are within your control, but 95% of it, of it is time in the market. So number one is the market. Number two is the team. You need to get the best team possible. The team that you need at 1 million is different than the team that you need at 3 million, uh-huh. different than the team that you need at 10 million, and so on. Mm-hmm. And I hate to break it to you, but your team is not going to scale. The people that can get you from sales, marketing, technology, et cetera, legal to 1 million is a totally different team than to 3, 3 to 10, totally different team than 10 to 20, 20 to 40, different team than 40 to 100, and so on. Right. Your team is going to change and you need to have courage to change it, to hold them accountable and to grow yourself as an entrepreneur because you need to also reinvent yourself and grow as a leader, right? Team is number two. And then once you get the team, you got to run as fast as possible. Speed is the key determinant of success. Run like there's no tomorrow because if you run too slow, your competitors are going to catch up. So team is number two. Number three, cost of capital. You need to have capital to scale the company. And the reason I said cost is if capital is scarce, like it is right now, then you got to compete with a lot of other companies, startups, entrepreneurs to get it. So you got to make sure that you have top numbers, top parameters. Otherwise, your life becomes very hard. So that means you got to spend thoughtfully. You don't just spend left and right, 
but you spend on the things that pay off, right? That's three. And number four, and this matters honestly more after 10 million or 20 million or even mm-hmm. 40 million. You don't really need to worry about it under 10 unit economics, mm-hmm. market, team, cost of capital, and unit economics. You need to start worrying about your unit economics, in other words, efficiency uh, at a later stage, maybe when you are 20 million plus, things like What's your cost of acquisition? How, m- how many dollars you need to spend to acquire $1 of revenue? What's your rule of 40, which measures yep. your growth rate, cash burn, et cetera? You don't really need to worry about any of it. But the point is, at some point, you have to be a self-sustaining business, cash flow positive self-sustaining business sooner or later. You can't always rely on investor money. Mm-hmm. And so at some point, at a later stage, you got to start figuring out how to do it effectively. At an early stage, Candidly, it's all about growth and just building a great product. Um, after 10, after 20, that's when you start worrying about that. For one to three million, do you remember what your North Star KPIs was that you paid attention to? Like, was it product stickiness? Was it just growth rate? Was it, what, like, what, what mattered more than anything else at that stage? I did not even know what a North Star KPI is uh, uh-huh. back then. I mean, I know <laughs> what it is now, but I'll be candid. I didn't even know what a North Star KPI is when we were a uh, year, two, three years into the journey. I mean, you, I had to learn, right? So right. now I know what my North Star KPI is, and we track it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's how many, how many, how many companies, how many scorecards are monitored by our customers today. Mm-hmm. You know, just like Amazon monitors how many purchases a regular Prime customer makes on a website each week. But at right. the time, I had no idea what the hell my North Star is. What do you what do you think it should have been? Like if you could now, if you're gonna start a second company, if you're gonna go back, if you could go back in time, you're back at one million, you're back at 2015, what would you make your North Star metric KPI? I think it's dependent on a business. Look, I think it's highly dependent on a business. Uh no, look, I th- I think for any business and for my business, you have to have a leading indicator that shows to you consumption of your product, mm-hmm. right? Because annual recurring revenue retention and all the other things are tied to how often are people willing to consume your uh, insights. And consumption obviously can happen through API, user interface, right? Like the many ways, but um, how much do you really can't live without the product that you're building? Like something like daily active, daily monthly users, like how much time spent on the platform type of thing? It it depends on a product, right? Like it really depends on a product. Uh, It's very idiosyncratic. I would caution against having a single KPI and and saying like, hey, like, let me go focus all my energy to scale the company around it. I think it's a mistake because um, a single KPI always kind of narrows your focus Whenever you focus on even a couple of KPIs, that means you're ignoring some others. And what you focus on at different stage really changes depending on a business. I would say again, listen, I would say again, when you're one to three or three to five or whatever uh, in revenue, you got to just focus on delivering value to the customer. Let's say somebody paid you $100,000. Mm-hmm. Go ask them or $10,000, whatever. Go ask them, what would it take for you to pay me 30% more? Ah, uh, great question. And then if you were delivering, if somebody is paying you $10,000, you want to ask yourself, how do I deliver to them $100,000 of value? Mm-hmm. And if somebody is paying you 100000 how do you deliver a million of value? Right. So you got to really get good at 
deeply listening to your customers. I think uh, probably one mistake that I made is uh, because I, I know cybersecurity very well, I kept being so excited about innovation and vision, and many entrepreneurs do that, but I wasn't as good at listening to the customers deeply as I should have. Mm. And I think it's all about really how well do you listen to your customers? Right. Alex, I I know we scheduled this only for 30 minutes. So if you need to run, you need to run. Let me know. I have tons of more questions. You just need to tell me. Keep you know. going. I'll give you, I'll give you 10, 15 more minutes. <laughs> awesome. All right. So it sounds like you're saying at that stage, when I'm at 1 million, I'm trying to grow to 3 million. My number one KPI should be focusing just on product usage, listening to customer feedback. Do they use it? Do they see the value? Do you? So are you saying you don't feel like people should be paying attention to anything like customer acquisition costs, net retention rate? Is all of that way down the road and it would be distraction to, to be trying to track these numbers at that stage? No, I mean, you should pay attention to it to an extent. I think retention is especially important. Mm -hmm. Retention is actually incredibly important because if you get 10 customers early on and then five of them churn, what does it tell you about the value of your product? I think retention actually is incredibly important indicator for a company. So I would obsess over that. Customer acquisition costs, no, not really. I don't think you should worry about it until you are three, five, six million, as long as you spend within reason. Right. I mean, you should not be spending, but I mean, use your kind of rational mind. You should not be spending a hundred thousand bucks to acquire <laughs> a ten thousand dollar customer, right? Like uh that's a ten to one ratio. But can you spend it it's all like look, it's all I think a artifact of how long your customers are going to stay with you. If your customer is going to stay with you for three years, then right. it's okay to spend $30,000 to acquire a $10,000 customer. Right. Because that's actually pretty good. Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah, you spend 30K, you acquire the 10K customer, they spent, uh, they stayed with you for three years. So it's kind of like almost a one-to-one yeah. LTV, LTV to CAC ratio. That's really good um, in many cases. Right. Uh, I would like as long as you're within reason, I would not obsess over these cost of acquisition early on. Right. Okay. Um, guys, if you listening have any questions, drop them in now and I'll try to work them in. One question I wanna wanna ask you selling into enterprises now. I don't know if back then you were already trying to get into enterprise or whether it was mid-market, but you know, you have customers like AXA, Nokia. You know, as a startup selling into enterprise, it's always this conundrum because obviously they have all these requirements. You don't have a lot of resources. They don't really want to work with a young company that, you know, hasn't proven themselves yet. So do you have any tips for founders selling as a startup, you know, series A selling into enterprise? I think it's, uh, I think again, kind of, you know, if you think about a classical article by Jeffrey Moore, Cross on the Chasm. Mm-hmm. When you were early on, you were going after innovators and you're going after visionaries who are going to take a chance on your product. Right. And then you got a big chasm before it crosses into the early majority. In other words, you get enough people using you where more people kind of buy from you. I think um, I think case studies and references are very important for enterprise selling. So, but but do you build them up with mid-market? And then you have those... Because how do you get your first enterprise customer if you you know you needed the first customer to be able to get a case study you beg 
you look for people who are going to take a chance on you. You get them a massive discount. Once they take a chance on you, you go to the second person and say, hey, they took a chance on me. Then you mm-hmm. repeat it. I think early on, you just got to grind it out yep. and look for visionaries who are going to take a chance on you and uh, try your product. After you have about 10 customers, you start doing case studies and references. But there's always uh, there's always like these groups where you can go to introduce yourself. For example, in security, you have chief security officer events, mm-hmm. forums. So I think there's always uh, those ways to acquire early customers for your startup. Do you think it's generally a mistake to go for enterprise right away? Like, should you start with mid-market and work your way up? Or... I don't know. Did you guys go for them right away? Are you happy with it? Do you wish you would have approached it differently? Uh, yes. Actually, I think that one mistake I see people do, especially when they're about a million in revenue or even two million in revenue, is you go after a big logo like, mm-hmm. you know, like a big bank, for example. And a sale to a big bank can take you a year, for example. So yep. you're just going to die as a startup. Like you're going to run out of money. You're going to die as a startup which is trying to get to a million in revenue or a million to 2 million in revenue yeah. because sales are very complex. And also, even if you do manage to get lucky and lend that customer, you're not going to be in a position to support them because those uh, those com- customers are very needy. They need a lot of features. They need a lot of handholding. So you're just not going to be able to support them. I think early stage, and there's again, there's no like rule. There's always exceptions. Totally. But I think early stage, you want to go after mid-market customers who are more nimble can buy from you much faster. Um, And then you go after bigger customers only when you are ready to support them. Cool. All right. Kind of like, actually it's like a common anti-pattern whenever I'm, I'm an angel investor into about 20, 25 startups. And whenever I talk to an entrepreneur who's raising a seed capital or for example, maybe they're a million in revenue and they show me their investment deck and say, oh, yeah, we're talking to Bank of New York Mellon, we're talking to Citigroup, we're talking to all these customers in a pipeline. That's an immediately red flag for me because I know that they don't know what they're in for. Like, they don't know what they're in for. It's going to be a six-month sales cycle. It's never going to be as big as they anticipate. Procurement right. is always going to knock down the price. Yeah, so, like, That's always like a signal that... Um, um, Jim has one question here. Quick question. What is your suggestion about company sales model in the early stage? More direct sales or cha- channel sales? Stay as far away from channel for as long as possible. Huh. Why? I mean, when you are up to 5, 10 million in revenue, it's too early for you because if you're working with a channel partners, then basically channel partners are making money reselling other vendors' software. Mm-hmm. So they might be reselling a billion dollars worth of Dell computers or they might be reselling two billion dollars worth of Microsoft or like a 200 million dollars worth of CrowdStrike as a small startup they're never going to pay attention to you mm-hmm. and resell the product because your revenue is just too small so you're going to waste a lot of money a lot of marketing trying to get the channel going it all sounds very attractive in theory where you got this channel partner who helps you to accelerate your business but right. I mean the, the actual truth is, the only person that's going to fend for yourself is yourself. Right. If you're successful, everybody's going to want to partner with you. If you're not successful and customers don't love you, no channel partner is ever going to help you. So you got to do direct sales until you're probably about even 5, 10 million in revenue. Yeah. I mean, I okay. would say uh, 
stay away. Maybe last question. If you could go back in time to, you know, 2015, 2016, 2017, Alex, two things. One, what do you think you did really well? Like what decisions that you made turned out to be working out really amazing? And then two, what were the big, biggest mistakes that you made that you wish, you know, you could go back and fix and things would have played out differently, maybe? Best decisions, best things in 2016, 17 and biggest mistakes. Um, good question. So again, there's no one, there's no like one playbook. Uh, I can tell you, again, the CEOs and entrepreneurs that I mentor and that I coach, you give them advice, they still prefer to make their own mistakes. Uh, so mm -hmm. all the mistakes I'm going to tell you, I read about them, but I still prefer to mm -hmm. make them because mm -hmm. everybody is stubborn and they make them. Look, I would say um, I would say one of the best decisions I made in in hindsight, mm -hmm. number one, number one, never raise money when you need them. If you wait for too long until you raise money, you're too late in the game. So every time we raised capital from investors, we did it ahead of time. And by doing it ahead of time, when we did not need it, we could select the best partner. We could create competition between investors and negotiate the best deal. Uh, if you're raising when you're running out of cash in three months, then you're screwed. You're never going to get a good deal. That's number one. Uh, number two, good decision that we made is I feel like we never uh, invested too much into sales marketing early on in the early days. As soon as you hire sales marketing channel people, that starts costing you a lot, a lot of money. Um, it can drag the company resources. It starts creating contention with the tech team uh, because excuses start flying about how the product is never good enough. Um, so focus on technology, R&D, and building the best product. Always invest into R&D. Be very stingy on HR, finance, recruiting, legal, sales, marketing, early days. Uh, that's advice number two. Uh, advice number three, which is a cliche advice, it's all about people. Amazing people move the company forward, right? Uh, that's the three best decisions. Now, mistakes, thousands of mistakes. Mistake number one, uh, which my team doesn't believe me since some of them are listening, uh, doubting my gut feelings. Every time I had a gut feeling about something, maybe a customer is going to churn, maybe a person is not working out, maybe that. And then I looked back, always was right. So I think mm -hmm. as an entrepreneur, you need to start trusting your gut feelings a lot more. That's mistake number one. Um, mistake number two, kind of counterintuitive. But I would say early days, you, you spend a lot of time chasing customers and not building enough foundation and core infrastructure for the company, the revenue operations, the legal, the modeling. That was a mistake because you end up building a flimsy foundation. And then when you later on as a company today, you need to do the opposite mistake. You need to talk to more customers and not get involved as much in day-to-day -day fires and operational mm. things. And most people do the opposite. Early on, they just chase customers, which you need to do to survive, but they don't spend enough time to focus on building this core foundation for the company. Yeah. I'll take one last question from you. Um. Well, I wanted to just, is that possible? Because in the early days, you're obviously, you know, very limited in resources. And when you say build out the infrastructure for legal, for finance, you know, can you even afford to bring in a VP finance, a general counsel, you know, all these people who would be really great at this, or you just need kind of scrappy, more junior people, but they they can get the job done. 
Early on, you need only the people who get shit done. Early right. on, that's the only people that matter. Stay away from managers, directors, executives. That would be the worst decision you make. And fire very, very fast. I know my team, is lis- my team is listening. <laughs> fire very, very fast. Zero patience, especially early on. Zero patience, because you're going to die as a company if you wait for too long. I did not. So Sachin is on. Uh, I did not have a general counsel. That's you fired Sachin. <laughs> no, Sachin is not. No, but I did not have a general counsel full-time until we were probably about 20 million in revenue. I did not have a head of HR until we were probably even, yeah, 20 million in revenue as well. And that was a mistake or the right decision? Mistake. The right, right decision. Right decision. Okay, cool. Um, and a mistake. And a mistake. It's always well. You learn. You learn through painful mistakes, right? You learn through pa- painful mistakes, right? Uh, Steve Cheever says you got a subconscious and doesn't lie. Um, okay, last last question then. Um, this is just something that I picked up in your interview with Nathan Latka, and it seems like that that's maybe another thing that you did really well. It's kind of related to the first point you mentioned. But at the time of the interview, you guys had raised two hundred ninety million dollars, and you still had two hundred million dollars in the bank. So it seems like you were very even before this whole like economic you know change, uh, very careful with spending money and spending money slowly and having that buffer to be able to strategically have optionality. Right? Is that something you already did early on uh, at that stage, or something you learned later on as you kind of matured a little bit? We were always uh, careful not to spend like a drunken sailor. Uh, and I remember meeting with one investor, uh, kind of the fund that I'm not going to name, but uh, mm-hmm. I did not take money from them. Uh, but uh, they looked at my PL like four or five years ago and said, you should be spending three times as much or four mm-hmm. times as much. Um, they did invest into WeWork, by the way, but uh, that's a separate story. Uh, but <laughs> you, can, you can deduce, uh, you can deduce which ones. Uh, and uh, no, look, I think the company is, uh, I think you're building an enduring company. A lot of startups forget about that and they start spending money and saying, oh, we're going to figure it out later. And so it's good to be an optimist, right? Like it's really good to be an optimist and believe that you're going to change the world. But you also have to like confront the facts and anticipate what could go wrong. And you can't just like be living and saying, oh, yeah, it's going to be amazing. It's going to take off. I'm going to raise money. It's going to triple. You want to hope for it. You want to inspire the team. But at the same time, you always want to have plan A, B, C, D, et cetera. So I think as a company, we always made sure that we don't overspend. Yeah. We make sure that we don't just overhire, but we also maintain the top performing team and then shrink the team if we have to, if we feel like we're not meeting our goals. Um, those are tough decisions. Nobody likes them, but I think it always kept us in a really, really good financial state. And that I think is what also helped the company succeed. Absolutely. Sachin has a question, so I'll let you decide whether you need to run. Uh, maybe it's been asked already, apologize if so, but how have you groomed talent who have gone on to start their own companies? What makes an employee then most likely to be successful in becoming an entrepreneur? Yeah, so here's an example. We had an early engineer, Josh. I think it was year one or year two. He said, you know, I should really build a widget where somebody can go to your website and find out the score, how secure you are. Nobody asked them to do it. 
he wasn't in a marketing team, but he just coded it on a weekend, put it on a website, and it became a top performing lead generation mechanism, the instant mm-hmm. security scorecard. Um, and then Josh, by the way, left a couple of years later. Now he's a founder of his own startup that's worth millions of dollars. I'm actually an angel investor into them. Nice. Uh, and they raised institutional money. But that's the mindset. I think the mindset is, you know what? I, I don't wait for people to tell me stuff. I just go and figure stuff out and make stuff happen. Um, I think that's the mindset that best entrepreneurs have where um, extreme ownership. They just uh, see an opportunity. They get stuff done. Um, they want to change things. They want to improve things. Even if it's not within your control, you want to own it. So I think uh, the best entrepreneurs always have a chip on their shoulder. I think you want to prove to people that you can succeed. Like, you know, somebody who has a chip on a shoulder just is going to hustle and outwork people. People who don't have anything to prove usually are not very incentivized to to go and work 24-7, basically. All right. I'll squeeze this one in because I actually struggle with this as, as a founder. How do you deal with the conundrum that oftentimes the people who leave to start their own companies are maybe the people you most want to keep at the company? Right. I mean, the example you shared, I forgot his name. The tool that he built became your number one lead generation tool. Right. And then he left to start his own company. So is that just the nature of it and you can't do anything about it? Or is there anything you can do to keep these people who are very entrepreneurial minded at your company to keep building more of these amazing lead generation tools on the weekend? Well, there are four types of exits, right? There are four types of exits uh, from a company. Look, number one, somebody is underperforming and either they kind of get the feedback and they quit, resign, or you fire them. That's a good exit because they're underperforming. Uh, Example number two is, okay, now suppose somebody is a good performer and um, they leave because somebody paid them more money. Mm -hmm. That's not a terrible thing, by the way, because look, at the end of the day, you want people to be driven by mission. You never can kind of drive people just through cash equity, et cetera. It's not good, but it's not terrible. The third exit is you have a good employee and they leave because they're frustrated with bullshit in a company or um, something else or their manager or turnover. That's bad, right? Like that's a bad situation because we should have done better as a company. It's an us, right? We should have done better. The fourth exit where somebody says, you know what? I want to go start my own thing. I think it's bittersweet, but it's great. Mm-hmm. It's bittersweet because you know, look, uh, the yeah, top performer. But I think, but I think it's unfair to them to retain them if they want to do their own thing. Everything is a tour of duty, and if we inspire them to go do their own company, do their own thing, change the world, I celebrate it. I think that we should not be sad about it. We should applaud them. We should support them, encourage them, help them succeed in their journey, and just stay friends and. I have too many stories like that. I think there's six alumni, five or six alumni of Security Scorecard who are now founders of their own startups. And I think that's a great story. I'd love to see more of that happening in the ecosystem. Security Scorecard Mafia. All right, Alex, I appreciate your time a lot. Uh, I know we went over time. I'm sure lots of people got lots of value out of this. We'll be uploading this as a podcast and on YouTube. So it's also uh, has some permanence. Yeah. Thank you, Alex. Thank you very much, sir. Talk soon. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Thank you guys for joining and enjoy the rest of your day, whatever time of day it is. Bye.